Good morning. This is Dr. Dan Guerra. Come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the in the Pacific Northwest of the United States of America. Today is the 4th of October, 2020. This um, podcast is coming to you right at the um, foot of two, hopefully, well-watched um, video podcast lectures that I just presented and posted on Facebook. For those of you that don't get that feed on the Authentic Biochemistry Podcast, I recommend that you go to my Facebook page and you will see and uh, listen to the two video lectures which were um, just recorded. One of them was recorded on uh, Thursday and the other yesterday, Saturday, the 3rd of October. So I want you to uh, hopefully have listened to those, then listen to this podcast. It's all a continuation of our discussion of senescence and aging and the immune system, right, in general. So without any further uh, explanation of that, let's get right to start, okay? All right. This is a paper that came out of Nature Reviews, Cancer Reviews, published in August of 2019, uh, and uh, page 439 to start. So what does this paper tell us? Why did I? Why do I recommend that we look at it? So, you know, the previous work demonstrated that senescent stromal cells can actually drive tumorigenesis. This has been established in the research literature. The tumor promoting and indeed suppressing functions of senescence, we've talked about both so far, seem to be incompatible, right? I wouldn't say that they are contradictory, I would say incompatible, which is a softer term. So to me, the better term would be contrarian. So they're contrary, which means that they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. You see, so they're incompatible, but the true relationship, as I say, is what I would call a contrarian at the phenomena specific level. Okay. So proteins, lipids, nucleotides, carbohydrates, all functioning as inflammatory and indeed extracellularly modified um, event biochemical processes have been consistently observed as the senescence-associated secretory phenotype, what we call SASP. Now, some of those factors act as growth stimulants, of course, and in fact, are utilized for bioenergetics. And so they can promote tumorigenesis just flat out by making ATP to drive cell division. Proto-oncogenes also are interesting to look at here because they act as often tumor suppressor genes, like P53 is one that comes to mind. P21 is another. They're involved in the checkpoint, which controls cell cycle, as you know. Uh, the RB gene is another one. Anyways, tumor suppressor genes are likely selected to control cell division. So they're called proto-oncogenes because at the stage I'm talking about, they're not oncogenes at all. Mutations or inappropriate expression causes them to be uh, frank uh, oncogenes, right? And remember, that's how it works. Really important to get that, get, get a handle on that literature. Okay. So... The active tumor suppressor genes are selected control cell division, and in fact, they also control differentiation and, in fact, physiological responsiveness and development. 
So those factors are generated, the ones I was, I'm mentioning to you, a, a, a constellation of carbohydrates, amino acids, proteins, and lipids. They're generated from a SASP, what I call platform, and they likely contribute to general homeostasis of, and, and ultimately of the entire organism. But you get mutations, and then you get mutations upon mutations or epimutations. You also get epigenetic tailoring of gene expression. And that, of course, is via CPG methylation, histone acetylation, and microRNA expression. Those are all the epigenetic signatures or tailors. And they can flip the system, of course, from one that is immunoquiescent to one that is hyperimmune or maybe tolerogenic. And thus that leads to degeneration in some categories of cell fate, infection in others, opportunistic infections, and yet also finally oncogenesis. Clearly then senescence mediates a developmental and homeostatic process. And it's been well studied in the mouse embryo system, looking at ectodermal and mesodermal sap cells, for example, in that system of the inner ear. And this paper talks about looking at SAS cells of the inner ear and of the developing ectoderm and mesoderm of the vagina in the developing mouse embryo. And signaling and successfully recruited macrophages lead to their removal, the removal of the SAS cells and clearance via, of course, phagocytosis. And the sequelae then teleologically obtains normal development subsequent to that recruitment of the macrophages, the development for each of those organs. The organs are the ear and the, and the developing vagina. So abrogation of senescence, this is the take, take home message at this point, via the deletion of a of the cyclin dependent kinase inhibitor 1A, we've talked a lot about, the gene is known as just CDKNIA. Remember, that's the P-INC 14A protein. That leads to developmental abnormalities, and that suggests it has a physiological role in normal development. Okay? So when, what I'm explaining to you is what you already should know, that genes that can be recruited later in uh, cell fate ontogeny uh, can actually be at an earlier stage uh, working in a totally different mechanism and mode of action, right? So early stages for um, the embryogenic development of the mouse inner ear, for example, requires the expression of that CDKN1A gene, whereas that later on when that gene is expressed, that's the, that's the one that's controlling the senescent process per se and dysregulating, remember, the T-cell response. You remember back a couple of lectures ago. So that's an important thing. So the same gene, even without a mutation, can play a totally, entirely different role depending on the temporal signature of its expression. I guess that's what I'm trying to say there. All right, so let's go 
further here. Another thing we can tell you is that senescence is critical for wound healing. Okay. So in a transgenic system where the CDK and 2A promoter, now you've heard these kind of experiments already, I've told you about them, is fused to a reporter gene and what's known as a suicide gene, resulted in expression of the gene and the SASP phenotype near a wound site. And when the suicide gene was induced, and you can do this again as a negative selectable marker by introducing a compound um, such as a guanine analog that is by itself inert and non-toxic, but upon the expression of the suicide gene, sometimes using something like LAXP Cree or sometimes that flipper combinase or sometimes uh, just simply the alteration of induction of expression, um, that gene will then become suicidal because it'll pick up an inert compound from the medium of the cells or an inert compound introduced into the mouse embryo system like this one here. And once that compound is acted upon by the um, expression of that suicide protein, the gene product, the protein itself, the, which is an enzyme, for example, HSVTK gene, lemony kinase gene, what it'll do is kill the cells that are expressing it. So uh, this is a really important way to study, for example, wound healing. So the resultant elimination of those senescent cells using this suicide um, gene expression system, this transgenic system, actually inhibited these cells reduced healing efficiency. Right? So it tells you that the SASP cells are involved in healing. In addition to the psychodependent kinase inhibitor 1A, that's the gene that we talk about, right? Because remember, it's an inhibitor of the kinase, um, which is, of course, an inducer of senescence, right? So that the protein product for the CDKN1A is an inducer of senescence. That's another title for it. Very descriptive, rock solid title. Um, there are cell and tissue specific SASP genes besides that CDKN1A. So for example, fibroblasts or breast epithelial cells, they senesce due to replicative exhaustion. We talked about this, like the hayfic limit. Or artificially, they can senesce via x-ray radiation. And if you study that, either the replicative exhausted cells or the x-ray and radi radiated induced senescent cells, you see overlapping transcriptomic signatures. And you also see some unique biochemical phenotypes. And now this shouldn't be any surprise to you because gene products never work independently. That's part of the whole epistasis process, right? Um, now, that's with the exception of a test tube cell-free translational lysate or maybe a heterologous expression in a cell line or bacterial system. Then you can isolate specific gene expression. I can tell you that as a recent scientist, I've done all those. And indeed, that is a way to study the activity of a gene product by itself. Cell-free lysates, heterologous expression in a cell line that doesn't normally have any other... Um, co-mitigating gene interactions epistatically. And of course, in the bacterial system where you might not expect a eukaryotic gene that does something really sophisticated, for example, in the uh, hypothalamus to be 
operating with the other gene products in a bacterial system like E. coli. So take a look at the interleukin-1A. It doesn't appear uniquely expressed in senescent epithelial cells and indeed hepatocyte growth factor, HGF, was uniquely expressed in senescent fibroblasts treated with the same senescence inducers. So see, this is you can do a differential screen and determine what genes are expressed and which are immediately and after the immediate response mediated associated senescent response. So SASP then, you can conclude from some of this, this work that I just mentioned to you, is unique in different tissues and stage of tissue age and treatment, suggesting that SASP contribution to cancer growth has to be studied specifically in each case. That's what I was doing before, remember, with the ratio and proportion. We we're looking at senescence and necrosis, remember? And we're trying to determine which of those factors and mechanisms might be appropriately examined to, for us to be able to create hypothetical deductions, to design experiments, to generate data that can be facilitated as evidence to understand the senescent process, right? So that's a very important um, philosophical consideration when you're doing this kind of science, right? And, and often it's overlooked even by researchers because the bottom line is excuse me there, I had to let my dog in. The bottom line is that often people that are doing this work don't take the time to take a deep dive into the primary literature, even the literature they're contributing to. Um, part of the reason is because as an academic scientist, which is how I spent most of my career, although I did work in biotech industry and in government labs, so I've done all three, um, but no matter what, you, you spend a lot of time um, writing grant proposals to get money to do your research. And that takes up so much time. And then the other big component, if you're an academic, like I was most of my life, is you do a lot of teaching. So you do a lot of teaching, you do a lot of grant writing. You may not have the time to do a thorough investigation of the peer-reviewed literature, even within your own field, okay? And if you don't do that, you're not gonna have uh, a complete understanding of the corpus of literature that's already been um, presented in the um, scientific papers. If you don't know some of these things, you may well be designing experiments and getting data and uh, understanding it as evidence and, and putting forth ultimately an induction of, uh, so that you think that your evidence tells you something about things in general, such as the SASP system but you may not have a clue about all kinds of other literature that's been published because you haven't had the time or haven't taken the time to read it. And it's, this can't be designated to a graduate student or a postdoc because if you're the principal investigator, you're the one that's going to be writing the grants. You're the one that's going to be thinking about the experiments. And so, sure, those other scientists, more junior level, like a graduate student, or the up-and-coming journeyman scientist, like the postdoc, 
they're going to be working all the time at the bench. And they're not going to also have much extra time to be doing deep investigations into the primary literature. But this is something that needs to be done by someone. Otherwise, you're missing out on a lot of the talent that's already been expressed in the literature. And the talent, what I've added, I mean the research scientists and the work they've contributed to the corpus of literature that you need to be informed about. So here's a paper published in Frontiers in Genetics. That's why I do a lot of papers in my podcast and in my video lectures, so that you get the full, the full plenum of what you need to understand. If, for example, in our process where we're trying to look at senescing cells and uh, organismal aging, human aging in the particular, as it relates to the global immune response. Uh, you need to read a lot of papers. So here's a paper published in Frontiers in Genetics, published on the 12th of March in 2015. Okay. What does this paper tell us and why am I bringing it forward? Well, it tells us that SASP is a pro-inflammatory secretome. Okay, this is cell type composed of cytokines and what they this is one of the earlier papers where you where they looked at what cytokines are generated and they found interleukin 6 8 the grow alpha the grow beta and mcp1 all of those genes we've talked about and their proteins you also have a series of growth factors like gmcsf gcsf hgf sf and indeed IGF. You also have proteases, part of the SASP secretome. Uh, which ones? The metalloproteinases, the big ones we talked about were MMP1, 2, and 3. And there are a lot of other non-soluble extracellular matrix proteins like collagens, fibrinonectin, laminin, and of course, a whole cast of lipids, both membrane lipids that never leave the cell or that translocate between the endoplasmic reticulum where they're synthesized through the Golgi apparatus with the plasma membrane and back again, and then of course converted to um, other, other molecular forms or molecular species of those membrane lipids after oxygenation of the fatty acids or oxygenation of the sterile component of those membrane lipid components. And that's just starting off, right? That's just a generic statement. And we've looked at this. Now, so that's one thing. SASP and its phenotypic sequelae differ according to cellular context, something I've just been trying to hit home with you. And of course, the type of stress that induces the senescent uh, phenotype. So SASP is at least partially a, now this is something that may be surprised to you, but I have brought it up a DNA repair dependent process, okay? So DNA repair is associated with generating the SASP phenotype. And it's actually a major part responsible for modulating senescence associated inflammatory microenvironments and tissues. Once you're trying to do DNA damage repair. And we talked, remember way back when, I did a whole series of lectures on DNA repair mechanisms. So I want you to go back and listen to those, or if you want to look up a static uh, hur heuristic response and look at textbooks, be my guest. I think it's much better for you to um, look at the, what's been contributed by the primary literature 
and explained hopefully by someone like me of how that integrates into the full corpus of understanding of events that relate to uh, DNA damage repair and SASP, as we've talked about. Now, SASP then contributes to what we could call a senescence reinforcement in the damaged cell and to then, of course, ultimately tissue repair because you've repaired the DNA. And importantly, age-associated tissue dysfunction. And ultimately then, as you might guess, age-related diseases, for example, like cancer or cardiovascular disease. So DNA damage response and repair generate stress signals subsequently transmitted from the DNA damaged cell to the extracellular microenvironment. That's how it works. So you get a rapid extracellular DDR. Remember that damage, DNA damage repair response. You get a rapid extracellular DDR signal, and that occurs in response to DNA breakage or damage. That can be transmitted to neighboring cells, that response, via direct cell-cell contact and to a series of paracrine signals, okay? So for example, P53, reactive oxygen species working through gap junctions and then through the ATR gene expression can control um, by, so-called bystander DNA repair mechanisms in adjacent cells via paracrine infection, thus causing growth arrest autophagy or even apoptosis in the bystander cell. Uh, for example, when you do an irradiation study where you irradiate one cell, you look for um, uh, its phenotype changing directly because of immediate growth arrest, but the production of ROS moving through gap junctions to a non-irradiated bystander cell, for example, let's say it's in the S phase, the DNA synthesis phase, ultimately getting growth arrest in that cell and very likely apoptosis because you're generating a bystander DDR response. Okay. Got that? So this sounds like SASP, right? So late extracellular DDR signals occur in response to persistent, low-level, chronic DNA damage and the signaling that comes from that. And that's collectively known as senescence-associated sequitory phenotype, right? And that involves genes like um, ATM, the YH2X. You generate this um, DNA scars response, it's called. And that, that generates a persistent DDR. So you get regular chronic constitutive expression of P53, which causes cell cycle arrest. So you get prolonged growth arrest. And then you generate the SASP, which becomes both autocrine and paracrine. And that can give you reinforcement, the SASP phenotype, or induction of senescence in adjacent systems, adjacent cell types, tissues, functional and structural remodeling of that tissue, which is very common. For example, we saw that in the microglia. Immune-mediated clearance and tissue repair. Again, think about microglia or think about any antigen-presenting cells that can be phagocytic. And of course, unfortunately, also a promotion of the malignant phenotype. Right? I told you these are only contrarians. These are not contradictory uh, pathways, right? 
really important to understand that. So DNA damage then is linked to SASP phenotype and the DDR components that we want to look at are the, are the genes ATM, CHK2, and the entire DNA repair enzymatic machinery. You also have a maintenance protein called NBSI, or NBS1, excuse me, and that's all required for SASP initiation and maintenance. Okay, So there's a whole series of genes that we could look at and take them apart one by one. And there's nothing wrong with that. We can go ahead and do that. But the problem with it, okay, is that isolating those genes by themselves is not going to tell us uh, what we need to know. What we need to know is how those genes interact with each other, right? That's the important issue here. And the only way we're going to know that is by looking at the papers that have studied it, right? So people have studied gene product, gene product interactions, all the way from the level of gene expression at the level of transcription, uh, splicing of the messenger RNA, translocation out of the nucleus into the cytoplasm, the translation of that maturing RNA, messenger RNA, either on polyribosomes in the cytoplasm or in ribosomal machinery associated with the endoplasmic reticulum, which is often linked to glycosylation and those proteins ultimately becoming signaling, moving through Golgi, plasma membrane, and maybe extracellular. So you can see here, there's a whole nested set of phenomena, right? That you need to add together to get the entire process, the entire functional contribution of the SASP phenotype as it relates to the expression of growth factors, pro and anti-inflammatory cytokines, and indeed frank paracrine acting uh, and autocrine acting proteins and lipids that can contribute to the SASP phenotype uh, and control its level of sending out signals to adjacent cells, right? Signaling out to those cells that were are not themselves damaged or that have been converted or induced into becoming senescent, right? And so we're going to do a lot deeper dive into that literature next. We're going to talk about the gene interaction here. Um, so the geneticists should be happy that we'll talk at the genetic level. We're going to talk about transcriptomes, proteomes, lipidomes. And then we're going to start, then we'll move out a little bit further and we'll start looking at how all of this SAS system interacts long distance within, for example, a tissue bed, right? Or an organ system like the brain, liver, kidney, heart, skeletal muscle, right? Or the blood, the blood system itself. And then that will, that will allow us to then bring back in, and I'll do it slowly and incrementally, all of the immune cells that are going to play a role in modulating the SAS response, right? And again, why are we doing all this? Because we are trying to recommend that studying the senescence-associated secretory phenotype of individual cells can get us a handle on the aging process, sensu stricto.
And if we can do that, then we can start analyzing where all the data can be understood with concepts and ideas, a contemplative reinforcement of the concepts and ideas to generate once again a new hypothetical deduction to go about to set up new experiments, design them well with positive negative controls, and then get data, and then get that data hopefully um, interpreted into evidence, and then the evidence to give us more enlightenment to what the aging process is. And that's what we've been doing here all along. So that's all I'm going to talk about right now. It's a beautiful day, and I probably won't do another lecture today. It is a Sunday. I try to get out and do a nice hike. So this is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra saying, hope you have a pleasant Sunday afternoon on this 4th of October. And of course, my final signature, bye for now. <laughs>